Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. The Chinese Communist Party has a particular way in which it likes its story to be told. It provides generous support for filmmakers who dramatize the party's origins and glorify its rule. But what about the episodes which grate against the narrative? Who's prepared to keep a scrupulous record of the famines, purges and cover-ups, which are also an important part of China's experience? Some people in China are telling such stories, despite the risks involved, and they're producing what could be termed a counter-history of China. It's often delivered not through the mainstream, but in the shadows, in order to circumvent censorship. A compelling new book on this topic explains more. It's called Sparks, China's Underground Historians and Their Battle for the Future. And I'm delighted to welcome its author, Ian Johnson, onto the podcast today to share some insights. Ian, thank you for joining us on China in Context. Well, thank you for having me. I'd like to start with Chairman Mao. His face still appears on every Chinese banknote, and indeed his body is interned in the Grand Mausoleum in Red Square. Now, if you go into the library of the SOAS China Institute, you will find a whole shelf of books about Mao Zedong, and many of them contain horrific stories about what life was like under his leadership. However, I've noticed that since Xi Jinping became leader, criticism of the Mao era has been strongly discouraged. Why? Xi Jinping probably has two reasons for this, if as much as one can tell the reasons for why he does things. But one of them might be due to his personal history. When he was a boy, his father was toppled due to a dispute over history in the party. His father actually, it seems silly in some ways, but his father had given some interviews to a novelist who wrote a novel about the base area that the communists had in the 1940s. The novel lionized one of the leaders there and Mao took this as an affront and said that this was in a way a challenge to Mao. And so Xi's father in 1962 was sidelined and never recovered his position near the top of the party. So I think maybe Xi Jinping on some personal level realized that history in communist China is a very dangerous undertaking. It's very powerful. It can work against you if you're not careful. And I think there's a more current reason than that, and that might be the fate of the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union collapsed, there were maybe two ways that people in China analyzed this. And of course, they were very concerned with this. One was Deng Xiaoping, the architect of China's opening and reform era. In 1990 and 1991, he thought the reason the Soviet Union collapsed was economic. There's a lack of consumer goods and things like that. So in 1991, he launched a new round of economic reforms in China that really put it on the road to prosperity. Xi Jinping's conclusion is somewhat different. He has spoken openly on several occasions of the failure of people inside the Soviet Union to believe Soviet history. Even Communist Party officials, he said, no longer believed in Soviet history by the 1980s. And the edifice collapsed like a house of cards. And in his view, this is because history was not controlled closely enough, and he does not want to see the same thing happen to China. 
So starting when he took power in 2012, he has embarked on a crusade against alternative versions of the past and any criticism of the Communist Party. Let's talk about one of the most shocking events of the Mao era, the Cultural Revolution. What are Chinese historians saying about that? And perhaps you could give us an idea of both the official narrative and what I've described as being this uh, counter-narrative of China. The official narrative is that this was a chaotic period that was one of the few mistakes that Mao made, but that we shouldn't put too much emphasis on this. Xi Jinping, initially when he spoke about the Cultural Revolution, he spoke about the difficulties, he spoke about the trials and tribulations that he experienced. He was sent off as a, as a young boy, a young yeah, teenager, to live in a village far away from his parents. His father was forced to work in a factory and exile and so on and so forth. But in later tellings, he, he portrays this as a period that toughened him up. It was like an outward bound course for a little while and made him into the can-do man that he is today. So the party views this as something that we shouldn't dwell on really. And if we do mention it, it should be sort of an aside to the history of the party, which it views as going from strength to strength over the past 75 years. The counter historians in China, the underground historians point to all of the uh, horrors of this period. And they, they point to the people who were killed, to the uh, summary executions of people, and, and to the suffering that many people had over this 10-year period. It's one of many problems that they highlight going back to the founding of the People's Republic, or even before that, from the 1940s, all the way up to the present. Now, look, I was fascinated to learn from your research that there's, in fact, been a long habit of rewriting history in China. So in past centuries, dynasties rewrote history to justify their rule. And they often suggested that their predecessors were unworthy of power. Do you think that's what the Chinese Communist Party is doing in our current era? Uh, yes, very much so. It inherited this template, which basically was that the previous dynasty had its glory days and had good times at the beginning, but over the decades or centuries in power, it declined due to a variety of reasons. Corruption, that the emperor was no longer paying attention to politics, but spent too much time with concubines, or that eunuchs had too much power behind the scenes, et cetera, et cetera. And the dynasty declined and the new dynasty had to take over. This is the story that the CCP also tells of why it took over, because there's no actual reason for the CCP to take over. The reality is that it won a civil war, a four-year bloody civil war with the existing government in China at the time, which was exhausted from having fought the Japanese, uh, and so it collapsed. But that's not a very good story to tell for why you took power, so it has to come up with this narrative that it was given the mandate of heaven, it was blessed by history in order to run China and to save China. So your book's entitled Sparks, China's Underground Historians and Their Battle for the Future. Can you explain the significance of that word, Sparks, please? It comes from the name of a student magazine that was founded in 1960. These students, a few dozen of them, had been exiled to a Western part of China 
they'd been caught, they'd gotten caught up in a political campaign. And this was right in the middle of the Great Famine from 1959 to 1961, when up to 45 million people died. They saw all of this firsthand. They were in one of the hardest hits part, hardest hit parts of China. And they wrote, they decided that they had to somehow alert authorities to what was going on. So they were able to get a hold of a mimeograph machine. They hand wrote out articles examining the causes of the famine and decided in a quixotic way that they would just mail it by post to different parts of China. Of course, the students had come from different parts of China, some are from Western China, some are from the South, that will just mail it to officials and let as many people know what's going on and in hopes that they can somehow solve the problem. Now, as you might expect, this is the high point of totalitarian control under Mao. They were quickly rounded up. 43 people were sentenced uh, for being counter-revolutionaries. Three were, were executed and the rest were given lengthy labor camp sentences. But the interesting thing, and there were probably many cases like this over the course of the 75-year history of CCP rule in China, the interesting thing is that after the Mao era ended, some of the students were able to look into their personnel file. And in their personnel file, in the fashion of a good bureaucratic state, everything had been kept. All of their the issues of the magazine, which had been confiscated and destroyed, uh, even love letters between some of the members of the group, their sentencing, their confessions, all the police files, hundreds and hundreds of pages of information. One of the members photographed this. And in the late 1990s, with the help of friends, she made PDFs, something we take for granted today, of course. And it began to circulate among underground historians. And I think what really shocked people was that the student essays from 1960, this journal, it describes issues that are still current in today's China, such as the lack of freedom of expression, the lack of checks and balances in a one-party state, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we can see with this simple digital technology that these this kind of resistance spread around China, and it is now one of the touchstones for the counter-history movement, so much so that one very well-known critic of the regime, a translator of Vaclav Havel in Beijing, Cui Weiping, when she read this, she said, now we have our genealogy. Now we know that there were people who came before us a generation or two ago who were struggling with the same issues. And it's very powerful. It makes you feel less alone to know that there were other people in Chinese history who also shared your concerns. So what's becoming clear is that in mainland China, and indeed even in Hong Kong now, there is a struggle to keep memories alive. The people in your book seem determined to stop society from forgetting certain important things. Who do you think these uh, counter-historians, as you describe them, are writing for? Who's their audience? There are many people involved in the movement, and they have a variety of motives. Some of them have overt political motives. One of the people who accompanies us from the beginning of the book to the end, the independent journalist Jiang Xue, she comments on current events using the past to help explain things like the COVID crackdown. She hopes to make people aware of failings of a one-party state and to make people aware of past struggles against the party. So she has a very 
current and immediate goal that she hopes to raise awareness among people, especially young people in China today. But there are also other people who see their work as time capsules for future generations of Chinese. One person I, I write about, he helped found a independent history journal, which has been going on now for 15 years. It's an underground history journal. It's published as a PDF. And he said, he said, it's almost our patriotic duty that we should, as Chinese people, tell the story. He said, it can't be, for example, that the Cultural Revolution is only studied at Western or foreign universities. It has to be studied by people inside China today. So they have a variety of motives, but they, they feel that it's their duty to history to set down these records, to talk to the eyewitnesses, and maybe future generations of Chinese can make sense of this or make use of it. And to know that even now in Xi Jinping's China, when things have not been so dark in a generation or so, that there were people who did not accept the status quo. Lastly, I'd like to ask a question about the so-called white paper protests. That's a reference to the demonstrations held in many Chinese cities at the end of last year in which some people held up blank sheets of paper as a way of indicating their anger and their frustration without actually using any words. How do you interpret their message? This came after at least a year of increasing frustration about the government's policy. In most parts of the world, by the second half of 2021, people were getting vaccinated, countries were reopening, but not so in China. For the next year, the government continued the zero COVID policy. It used inferior Chinese vaccines, and there seemed to be no prospect of letting up on this policy. So you had people protesting and trying to protest in the only way they knew. They were afraid of holding up slogans on the white paper and writing something else. So they simply held up blank sheets of paper to say, we can't say anything, but we're unhappy. And, and this was also part of this interplay this synergy between people inside and outside China. They were uploading videos of these protests to Twitter and YouTube, and then people inside China were downloading them also. So we see this greater interplay between exile groups, young people in the West and big cities like London, New York, and uh, San Francisco, and people inside China. Thank you, Ian. That's been a most memorable and revealing conversation. That was Ian Johnson author of the book Sparks, China's Underground Historians and Their Battle for the Future, which is published by Oxford University Press. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute in London, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. Mm -hmm.